listening to the Uloft podcast presented by United IUP, a community of college students and young adults in Indiana, Pennsylvania, who are dedicated to unite with each other and Christ to change the world around us. We hope that this podcast raises questions and answers others while ultimately starting a conversation to discover unifying biblical truth in this chaotic world. This is about a podcast about demons. That's okay. Uh, I actually was asked recently by a church member. She was like, hey, can you come over and like bless my house? Um, Various reasons for it and whatnot. And I was like, sure, I guess I'm. She's like, well, first she said, do you have any holy water? And I was like, no, but I've got like some anointing oil. If that's, you know, I think for most people, they're like, yeah, sure. That sounds fine. Whatever works. Right. Um, And part of me was like, what's going on at this house that. (laughs) Yeah. um, Not sure what you're going to walk in. Yeah. 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 Not sure. And I was like, do I need to call up like the the Catholic priest in town? Um, He and I are pretty good friends because we both started at the same time. He's a younger Catholic priest as Catholic priest go. Um, So I, I asked him one time, I was like, what? does the Catholic church like officially do exorcisms? And he was like, yeah, but there's a lot of, um, uh, kind of correspondence back with, uh, Rome in order to be able to do. So I think like if he knows that maybe there's a potential exorcism that needs to take place, right. He has to contact his Bishop who then contacts us, the archbishop, the archbishop writes back to Rome, gets approval from the Vatican. They write back saying, yes, you can do this or investigate it or whatever. Really? And so, then, so after all of that, they can finally go and investigate and see whether or not. And I'm like, by that time, like, who knows what kind of like carnage I've watched these movies. There's a lot of carnage that can happen after all. Like that seems like a very red taped process for something that seems to be like an immediate response type deal. Right. <laughs> you know what a, I mean? Yeah. That's a definitely a lot of bureaucracy there, but their point, um, and this is actually a point of kind of what we wanted to talk today uh, in this podcast is we never ever ever want to flippantly claim demons in anything right because what happens if we go to this house and it's not that and it's something else and we have now said that this person this child whoever it is is demon possessed and it's like what kind of trauma does that do to a person you know what I mean yeah Um, and the dangers of of demonizing either kind of on a, a lesser, like we use that term kind of flippantly as well. Like when we say demonize, we mean, you know, to put in a lesser light, generally speaking, right. as like opposed to like dehumanization. Is yeah, dehumanization as opposed to like someone who has been possessed by a demon, right? So there's lots of unpack there. But their whole point is that it's like we are careful about who we say is associated with a demon. Which is a good place to be, in all honesty. But I always thought that was fascinating. It's like I asked him, I was like, "Do you have like classes in seminary on how to do exorcisms?" He's like, "No, there's like one person in an entire area that does those things." And I was like, "This is so cool," because yeah. I didn't have that in my Methodist classes. Yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, I think I I watched a, like a couple videos on the whole concept of exorcism yeah. once through training, and that was pretty much it. And one of the things yeah, and it was that, called the exorcist <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what not to do <laughs> so, okay so even on that particular form of so de- demonization the way we're going to talk about it would be more like dehumanization but let's just say for the purposes of this entry discussion here by the way hi i'm caleb and i'm michael and this is the uloft podcast a wonderful intro right there uh, yeah. <laughs> um okay so I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said that man doesn't see God because he won't look low enough. 
Mm. And I sometimes wonder if this is the same case for something like a demon possessed person. So if we think when we hear demon possessed, if we immediately go to the exorcist or we go to the Hollywood rendition of this, right? When I think about demon possessed, I think about someone who is so badly possessed by the spirit of an idea that they will do things that they otherwise would deem unthinkable. Yeah, right, because we do, I mean, the human history is just chock full of people doing atrocious things that I wouldn't say are someone who legitimately has a demon possessing their body, but certainly are doing actions as if there was a demon possessing their body just leaving carnage everywhere they go, right? I mean, I think every war that has ever been fought, usually you can find people that fit into that category, right? And it's well, like, yeah. And one of the reasons why I think we should at least remain open to the possibility of ideological possession or possession by an idea is because if we're always thinking about this in terms of the exorcist, I think we miss the danger of what can happen when you are seized by an idea. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, someone who has completely deceived themselves on a particular mm-hmm. issue and they believe about themselves and Mm -hmm. about God and about the world and about their neighbor all in a certain way that is not true, they will do things that are terrifying. Right. Especially if the train of thought that you are working with is that great change requires like sacrifices, for example. I mean, like every major cultural shift that has happened, someone thought I'm going to make a great change. And there has been, a road full of dead people following them right to get there like i can't think of a single time where that hasn't happened yeah and it's Um, exceptionally horrible when there's but that's an idea like that's not a yeah like you were saying this is just an idea running its course sometimes yeah it's not always safe and then if you couple that with like a messiah complex to where the person believes not only is the change prudent right but they are on a divine mission to execute the change right and so break a few eggs to make an omelet becomes not only justifiable but becomes something that is a divine injunction right. for you that you have to do. Yeah. And so... And and I mean, this happens in the church. There's a whole podcast series that was probably one of the most most listened to podcasts for like a six, eh, like three month period um, about like a church that went through this kind of like, we're, we're shooting for greatness and we don't care what's left in the wake of it kind of mentality, right? Um, so if you if you want to check that out, Mars Hill podcast, right? Like that was, and it was exceptionally well done. It's a very interesting oh, yeah, lesson. Yeah. In fact, I still think they're actually doing episodes on it. They've kind of shifted gears from just cataloging what happened in that church. But um, yeah, d- demonizing as a thing, is, it's so interesting because we use these religious terms, but it is almost exclusively used in non-religious ways. You know what I mean? It very rarely has anything to do with actual demons, and it has everything to do with just taking some human or subset of humans and degrading them um, to be lower than whatever you conceive of yourself, right? Yeah, and And you would conceive of them as... So Hitler did this, for example. Um, Right for Hitler, love this, (laughs) in a podcast. Um, For the record, obviously this is going to be... Uh, these were bad things, but part of 
kind of apparently part of Hitler's conscious in making things is he he was a germaphobe apparently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was very conscientious about dirtiness and cleanliness, and he categorized apparently the world in this way. There were certain people that were considered clean. Um, he would consider, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people of the German-Austrian kind of area to be those who were clean, and he considered Jewish folks um, particularly dirty, right? And because of that, he had a messiah complex too because he wanted to save his group of people from, right, like this bacteria that was, in his terms, entering into this healthy thing. So he had a messiah complex. He was willing to go the distance in regards, but it it doesn't seem like he was demon possessed. He would just had this thought that he was going to run with to the extremes and it resulted in the death of 6 million Jews, right? And a war that results in the death of significantly more people. Um, plus the invitation of other leaders who then themselves killed off millions and millions of other people as well. Right. And all of that atrocity and all of that carnage started with an idea, but it wasn't religious. In fact, it was medical, so to speak or biological, so to speak, which is just fascinating. Yeah, so they kind of, people that demonize others, they do it to engender worldly secular power, or maybe they do it from a spirit of fear, like if they're afraid of the other side or the people who are not like them. If they're afraid of them, then the easiest way or maybe the most effective way to get rid of them is to convince society that not only should you abandon them, but God has already abandoned them. Yeah, yeah. And I think if we can, if you can take a subset of people and you can convince society that that is true about that subset of people, then you get- You can do whatever you want. Right, and it's it's weird We did this here in America, right? We took people, um, like that's how this slavery it like was actually part of like law because people have said, they are not humans, they are three-fifths human right like that was the like terminology so therefore because of their three-fifths human we can do whatever they want because they don't count as in our constitution when we say a person is you know can pursue life liberty and the pursuit of happiness right when they have all of these rights well you don't have these rights because you aren't fully human you are sub you are three-fifths um, and you can do whatever you want to a person at that point because they aren't a person in the same way as you conceive of yourself and that's yeah. very dangerous. But and obviously these are the worst case scenarios of all of these things. But we do this on the daily, right? We do this all the time, and sometimes it's out of fear, sometimes it's out of out of power hungriness. Um, but that's like that's a deep seated aspect of human nature is to fear the other person and put them down to make ourselves better in some capacity, right? Like yeah. that's just that's just normal human behavior. I think everyone, when it comes to the idea or when, when they try to guard themselves against demonizing someone else, what they try to do is they try to measure whether or not they're demonizing someone based on whether or not they hate them. And I think that's the wrong way to measure it. I think that's maybe part of it. Because yeah, hate doesn't usually just stem up out of nothing. Yeah. And I, and I, th- I actually think that the, the motivation that causes the worst kind of atrocity is, is not so much hate as it is disgust. Yeah, I think it's it's the sensation of disgust or fear, right? So like, which fear usually stems from like a, a disgust feeling as well. Yeah, like you can you can probably think of a handful of people throughout your life, especially if you're you know a young adult or approaching thirty, a handful of people who you felt passionate feelings of hate for and you didn't do anything about that hate. Maybe hopefully like you didn't act on that. <laughs> God willing, you didn't do anything. But but, <laughs> but the thing is, is like 
you always smash a spider when you see it. Yeah. And a lot of that is like, that's a combination of disgust fear. Right. And that's all that you see in the spider so yeah. much so that you can smash it and think nothing of it. Yeah. And so you can get there with people too. Oh yeah. And and that's the, that's the scary part. Right. Cause it's not a far stretch from killing and squashing a bug to, um, I mean, it is a far stretch in some capacity, but like the fact that that's just an innate automatic reaction when you see something disgusting is to remove it out of sight. For the record, we also do this. I don't, I don't know if you knew this, um, but we do this with our prison systems. Um, all of the prisons in the United States are on the outskirts of a not seemingly important town. I don't know if you knew huh. that. No, I didn't. So, for example, there's a prison. It's a level two de- state detention prison in between Clymer and Indiana. I'm willing to bet the vast majority of people don't even know it exists, right? And they do that on purpose because out of sight, out of mind. If I don't know that they're there, I don't have to fear them being there, right? And so it's like when I was in seminary, um, I did a lot of prison ministry while I was there. um, And there was a prison not that far out of Durham. And it's like most, I mean, unless you were particularly involved in kind of uh, prison uh, justice and stuff like that, you didn't know that there was a prison. And we did that on purpose because... Uh, the society said, we want people to not have to think about these things because if they're there, they're going to live in fear of that, right? And so they put them, and they can do all sorts of, I mean, prisons are full of all sorts of atrocities that go on, right? And it's like, if it's out of sight, out of mind, you don't hear or know what's going on in these prisons, all sorts of horrible things. But here's my thought. I think there is actually a decent biblical reason for why all of this happens. And it has to go back to Genesis, if you're curious about this. I am. Good. Michael's curious. Hopefully the rest of you are curious too. So um, this, I I, I kind of, and this is just a hypothesis, right? And I'm not saying that this is biblically true one way or another. I think this is a good potential explanation for why we do a lot of the things that we do as humans. Um, So I was, a couple weeks ago, I was preaching on... um, the passage where Jesus talks about being salt and light, right? Um, and if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again, right? And we're, we're called to be the salt of the world. One of the things that salt does is it, uh, other than flavor things, it preserves, right? Salt preserves food. You can take a slab of pork and cure it with salt, and you can have it last like pretty much indefinitely almost because it preserves that meat, right? So we've, we've known that for thousands of years at this point. So when Jesus says, I want you to be salt of the world, I want you to be preservers of other people, right? Which means that the opposite of that is to not preserve other people, but to preserve self, right? So Jesus is trying to get you off of preserving yourself onto preserving other people. Now, part of the reason why I think this is important is because because of the fall way back in Genesis, so think of it this way. Adam and Eve living in the garden, just straight up chilling, right? Enjoying life. They just, life is good. Um, and their life is eternal, right? Death does not exist for them, okay? Um, they, As long as they don't eat from the tree in the middle, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, right? The knowledge of good and evil. Um, death will not enter into this world. And only when they eat the knowledge of the tree of the good of evil, that didn't come out right eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There we go. Um, Does death enter into the world, right? So before this, they had no fear of death, which means there was also no need of self-preservation, 
Ah, yeah, because the vulnerability is Because there's there. zero vulnerability. The moment sin enters the world and we as humans fall is the moment for self-preservation ignites in humans, which is where, and this starts in small ways. First, it's like, I need to take care of myself and maybe my the person I'm in love with and my family of kids. And then it's like, well, okay, how do I ensure that we can take care of ourselves? We get more people who are on our sides, right? And then we involve into tribalism, right? And then those evolve into cities and those evolve into countries and empires and states, right? Where we say, I need to ensure my own prosperity and well-being. And we do that by fearing the people who would potentially go against us, who look different than us, who think differently from us, because it is a threat to my own life, right? And so I think you could categorize a lot of sin in that way, right? I am greedy because I want to accumulate enough stuff so that I can preserve my own life, right? Um, think of other things. Uh, wrath. Like, if I lash out and, and destroy something that I think is a threat to me out of anger and protect myself and my own um, need for self-preservation, like, that is a good thing, right? We see how some of our the sins that we conceptualize slot into that self-preservation mindset which is just ingrained in us right like that is because uh, that's what selfishness comes from i'm thinking about me first because i'm concerned about my own death jump forward to jesus now jump forward to the cross and the resurrection this is why i think jesus says you now can be salt of the earth is because those who put their faith in jesus christ guess what self-preservation is not important anymore because you have eternal life like, there's nothing on this earth that can get rid of your eternal life. So now you don't have to be in fear of your own physical life anymore. Now, does that come naturally regardless? Yes, but it is as if we have reverted back to the garden where we don't have to live in fear anymore because we know ultimately God is in control of our lives. And I can, for the first time ever, stop being concerned with self-preservation and now be focused on preserving other people. I can be outward looking. I don't have to be fearful or disgusted by other people that I, because I had to before in order to maintain my life that now I don't have to anymore. So shouldn't we allow... I'm sorry, that was a really long monologue, but... No, I mean, it, it, it does. It, it, it's good and it makes sense. That I just want to drill down on the piece where you said about naturally this will come to us. Shouldn't we allow for the fact that the, just the, the metaphysical shift that happened in the garden and the reality of death and mm -hmm. the reality of sin being thrust upon us yeah. in a global sense. Yeah. Shouldn't we allow for some element of self-preservation to enter into the mix there? And so here's, here's what I think about when you're on an airplane and they tell you to put your own mask on before you can put the masks on your children. Yeah, yeah, and the yeah, reason yeah. is because if you don't, you'll actually get knocked out and then right, you won't, and then be, able you won't be able to help the people around you. And so like, right. So, I see the the danger of the selfishness and the self that, that can come with packaged with self-preservation. Right. But I'm also not sure. In, it seems to me that in order to do good for other people, you also have to steward yourself well. And I will allow for the fact that we don't know how much that part is God's providence because True. it seems to be like a lot of it is. Right, right, right. So, and I think you bring up a fair question, but... Um, at least from a biblical sense. Uh, so in, in very small circumstances where to save yourself is to save other people, right? Which I think are very few and far between where those actually happen. Well, well here, here's a good example. Like what if you get married and then you stop taking care of yourself? 
yeah. And then your things marriage, go poorly for like, both right. you and your wife. Yeah, no, I totally get that. So, those are those moments. So in that sense, the self care actually is care for the entity right. of the marriage right, right, itself. Right. But your your thought of I need to preserve myself from death, even that, even in that mindset, right? It's like I want to take care of myself, not because I'm afraid of death, but because I want to better ah, so the take motive care changes. of someone else, yeah, okay. right? Like my thought is not about me anymore. My thought is about my wife, right, or my children. Yeah. I, Kendall's had this conversation because he talks about like he doesn't work out anymore. Uh, he, no, he still works out. He doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he hears. Yeah, that. I hope he hears this. He doesn't work out anymore to be the strongest guy to win championships with uh, like CrossFit. He works out so that he can be a good dad to his kids for the longest possible time, right? And his motive is not him anymore or his own health. His motive is I want to be there for my children, someone else, right? Now we know that Jesus says. Right. He says that the, the the greatest show of love is to lay down one's life for a friend, right? Um, and he demonstrates this in the fact that he gives up his own life, right? So the the most genuine show of lack of self-preservation is being willing to accept death so that you can preserve someone else, right? right. And that is kind of the Christian motive. We can accept death— and, and, and not just literal ways, but in, in figurative ways here too as well on this earth. We can accept death because we know that our life is secure somewhere else. And because of that, I can step into yeah. all sorts of death to care for other people. Right. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, um, and I wish, man, during COVID, I wish churches <laughs> did more what? of this. Yeah. We have a history of what priests and pastors and churches should do in the midst of pandemics and all sorts of global health catastrophes, right? So one of the questions that um, people asked, let's go back to the Black Plague, for example, um, in the middle of the 1300s, um, when the Black Plague hit Europe and people are dying and they don't know how people are dying or why people are dying, priests ask themselves, what do we do, right? And the general Christian response was, we need to step into these death situations regardless because we know and we have faith and we're trusting God that our lives mean nothing. And ultimately, if I die in the service of God because I was trying to care for someone else and preserve someone else's life, then so be it. And not only that, but there will be a reward in heaven for me to do that. Like somehow my life will be better in the long run, in the eternal run, and in the spiritual run if I do this and I'm willing to potentially sacrifice myself to preserve something or someone else, right? Um, and that was, so you had priests walking into horrible, horrible, horrible situations, getting them sick, sick and dying because they said, I don't care about my own life. I care about caring for the souls of others who are in desperate situations, right? And that was the response, right? Um, because they rested assured and trusted God to take care of them, right? They might lose their life in this life. And that, that was the creed of most martyrs, right? It's like, yeah. I count my, I mean, this is what Paul says. I count my life as of, as not, as nothing compared to what Jesus has to offer essentially, right? The, the eternal life that is to come. And I, I can endure anything because I know the eternal is going to be so much greater than that. And I, for the record, I don't even live like this most of the time um, because mm -hmm. I have a hard time conceiving sometimes that the eternal is going to be so much 
so worth it compared to what I could potentially endure here on earth. But like, that's how that self-preservation mindset kind of goes out the window because of Christ, because now we don't have to worry about self-preservation anymore because I know that my life rests secure in God. Yeah, and I so, can start focusing on others. So self-preservation then is a motive more than it is a set of actions in a sense. So imagine uh, if, you, if, if you live by the dictum, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Yep. Uh, and say you try to steward your money well. Yep. Someone from the outside could look at you and say, oh, well, Caleb's just cheap because he's trying to make sure that he has a nest egg that he can retire on. Right, right, right. And without knowing your motive, that would look true. Yeah. But the motive shift is so important and so fundamental that it colors the action so much that it becomes something different than that. The whole right. action becomes something different. And so, so for I, example, John Wesley used to say, hey, get as rich as you can. John Wesley is the guy who started the Methodist church to which I belong to. He said, get as rich as you can so that you can give as much as you can, right? From the outside, it just looks like people are getting as rich as they can. But in reality, it's like they're doing that so that they don't care about themselves anymore. They're doing it so that they can help other people, right? And that, I mean, Christianity, I'm still pretty sure today, um, Christian organizations are still, by and large, make up the bulk of any philanthropic or nonprofit giving, at least in the United States, right? So most philanthropic and nonprofit giving happens because of Christians and Christian organizations, because that's just part of us. We don't need to worry about ourselves, or at least we shouldn't, right? I know there are still parts of us that they're working this out as part of sanctification and salvation. I operate in self-preservation mode all the time, right? I shouldn't, but I do. Um, and, and I'll think of, I'll put my own time, um, I, my own needs, my own rest, my all sorts of anything, instead of pouring out of myself to care for other people around me do it all the time. You know, yeah. someone calls me at nine o'clock at night as a pastor saying, Hey, such and such person died in the, is dying in the hospital. You need to go there. And my immediate thought is, Oh, I just crawled into bed. Not, Oh my goodness. This is an opportunity for me to pour out myself for another person. So wouldn't you say then that self-preservation, the, the Christian opposite of that still has to be subordinated to a guiding moral ethic because the opposite the christian opposite of self-preservation is not recklessness in a sense so no like yeah you could look at the christians that were going to take care of people who had the plague and say oh they were reckless like they're gonna don't they know they're gonna die right, right, right. and so the world could think that they're reckless but the cost of not doing what they're about to do they value human life so much that they're right, willing right, to right, give right. up themselves for it yeah they weren't being reckless because the the payoff in caring for another right. human's life was so much worth the death that they potentially and could so contrast that with someone who just drives 120 miles per hour down every highway that they go right, on. Right, right. like that person's not doing an act of moral courage they just don't care whether they die or whether right. anyone else yeah, dies so there's a difference between um removing self-preservation as a result of trust in the eternal life that God promises and just reckless abandon of human life so much so that you don't even care what happens to you, right? Yeah, and that would be why it becomes an act of moral courage because it doesn't take courage to just stop caring about things. Yeah, oh yeah. Like if you don't We're very care, easy, right. we're good at that. The courageous person, for instance, like one of the things I always used to tell myself was like, well, just stop caring about what people think about you. And then you'll be able to do anything. Like right. you can say anything, you can, you can public speak without anxiety, all this yep, stuff. Yep. But that doesn't seem to be like the most courageous path. The most courageous path seems to be no, pay attention to what people think about you and, and tell the truth anyway. Yeah. And, and try and to do what you can anyway. anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
But I think a lot of, and you can trace, so any pursuits of power, right? Um, if I had to guess, are usually in terms of self-preservation. When countries do what they do, it's for the interest of that own country, right? When they go to war, it is for the interest and self-preservation of that country and those people to the detriment potentially of others, right? So wars happen because of self-preservation. I'll even throw racism in there. That happened because of self-preservation because here in the United States, we wanted to preserve. Um, and we actually, like, we have these written in, in doctrine, so to speak, um, preserve whiteness, preserve the economic stability that happened because of the slave trade, right? And we were willing to, back to your dehumanizing thing, you can dehumanize anybody in, in an effort to make sure that you're okay, right? Because you come first. And it doesn't matter it doesn't matter about anybody else. But the, the more someone looks different or acts different or disgusts us, um, and we think they're a threat to our preservation, the easier it is for us to dehumanize yeah. anybody. Well, there's an important point, I think, that we shouldn't lose here. And it, I see this happen a lot. Different isn't a virtue. And here's what I mean. Um, it is possible for someone who's different from you or, or a section of people who are different from you to be more wrong if, and I'm, I'm divorcing this from the race discussion for, yeah, yeah, for the yeah. purposes of this illustration. Imagine you have an us, doesn't matter who it is. Yeah, any us. Any us, and that us happens to be in closer alignment with truth as elucidated in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Well, if you are if you have another subsection of people who's different from the us, that subsection could actually just be more wrong. Yeah. And so we, while we should value diversity, we shouldn't yeah, value- Different does, does, doesn't automatically equate to a moral high ground of any capacity. Right. right? Like, just because it's different. Yeah, right. If something's, you, you wouldn't accept diversity when it comes to the mechanics of flight, for example. Yeah. Like, like if something- There's said, a right thing to do. Right. And you shouldn't deviate from it. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, so that that's something- Otherwise, planes fall out of the sky. Yeah, you are exactly right. Now, the problem is, I, I think in a lot of ways we know this to be true, but this is where it goes off the deep end, is um, because, some, because we categorize ourselves as right and more right than any other group or capacity, um, what the Bible would say versus what naturally humans do are two different things. The Bible says you know what you should do because you're standing in truth is you should, as best as you can possibly do, bring those persons into the fold instead of right. building a wall and saying they're different and therefore must be destroyed. Now, unfortunately, human history is nothing but building a wall and saying they need to be destroyed, right? That's generally, track human history, that's what we do um, from the very beginning. Uh, and that comes from that kind of tribalism, right, that I said, it's like they're different, vying for resources, they need to be destroyed as opposed to let's bring them into the fold. And the Christian response is always anytime a Christian, uh, if you go through the book of Acts, Paul does this, anytime a Christian is engaging with another religion, they don't like poop on the other religion. They try to help them understand and bring them into what they believe to be true. They don't mm -hmm. walk around saying, wow, how it's stupid are you yeah, how stupid of you to believe for, in an unknown and, god yeah like, and in fact what that, they do right? is they say you know what you probably are the smart ones we're the fools because what we believe doesn't make sense but i'm going to try to tell you and you can join us anyway right in fact they like paul goes to such great lengths to say um 
Like the wisdom of God is such foolishness, right? That it makes so much more sense for these other places. They're the wise ones. They're the smart ones. Now, ultimately, he would say, like, it is the foolishness that brings us closer to God. But like in that, he doesn't dehumanize anybody, right? He says, look, I, I see that you guys are wise and smart people. Let me try to help you understand what I believe and bring you into this fold instead of saying, well, I'm close to God and you're not and you're giving me a hard time. So let me curse you and I'll be on my way, right? Which is unfortunately what we do as Christians all the time. It's like we get fed up with people who don't want to hear what we have to say and we curse them, shake off the, and we'll even use coded religious terms. It's like, well, if they don't want to listen to what I have to say, you know, curses beyond them. Let me just kick the dust off my shoes. Like Jesus says in that one time when he's telling, talking to his disciples and I'll be on my very way instead of doing the hard work and sitting with that person for as long as it takes to build a relationship with them, to bring them into the fold instead of having such arrogance, which we as Christians are known for, um, to just say, well, I did my best and you didn't care to listen. And so I'm on my way. So do you think that's dangerous? Right. No, I agree. And and do you think that um, in the context of evangelism or say you're trying to reach someone who's particularly difficult, do you think it's the case that there are certain individuals who their, their heart has not yet been converted by the spirit of God such that it's not possible for them to hear or understand or see the the truth and what you're saying and so what you should do in that moment not abandon them completely but i can see some sense in backing off and kind of waiting at the other side of the tunnel for them and the reason why i think that is because look if a person has a hardened heart and you tell them you teach them the gospel 30 times and it fails all 30 times to, yeah. to resonate with them they'll start to think that there's something either exceptionally wrong with them or exceptionally wrong with the gospel right which in the sense of the hardened heart, the thing would be with them. Right. But it seems to me that that is a, that's an office of the Holy Spirit to, Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Like that, that's God's job to warm a heart so much so that the seeds planted by the gospel can take root. Like we can't do anything with that. Um, But to your point, yeah, our job isn't to abandon. Our job is to be an armedist arm's length to be there when needed. And it's not that you don't do anything in that period. Like if, if you have presented the gospel over and over and over to a friend, right? If you Or if you have said like, um, hey, I really don't think that God has designed you or wants you to be living in this manner over and over and over again, right? Um, that's fine. Like at that point, allow the spirit to work. And that might take days. It might take decades. But your job is to remain there an arm's length away always available and you have homework in the meantime and that is to be in every single day waking up and praying for that person yeah and you shouldn't you have to guard your heart against becoming bitter or resentful towards yeah and that's the other thing it's so easy for us and that's that's what was my point earlier we as christians are quick to bitterness because it's like well how could you not possibly believe this like this is the goodness of god and we are quick to bitterness um martin luther actually himself uh if you read a lot of his writing, so Martin Luther is the guy who kind of sparked off the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. Um, he had his own, and, you know, I am more than happy to call out when church leaders and important people fail, because we need to do that. There are moments where in the writings of Martin Luther, it is pretty evident that he is pretty particularly anti-Semitic. And here's why. 
So when the Protestant Reformation kicked off um, and was doing exceedingly well, the reformers thought, oh, we have distilled Christianity back to what it's supposed to be, right? And now because of that, he thought, so part of the reason he thought Jewish folks weren't turning to Christianity in mass is because he believed the Catholic Church and all of the, the fixings of kind of this institutionalized religion um, were keeping Jewish people from actually hearing the truths and goodness of the gospel, right? So he believed that now that we have distilled it and got it back to its original form, right, we have reformed it back to what it was, he believed that Jewish people in droves were going to come to uh, Christianity, right? And that just didn't happen. And so you can you can see in his writings over those time periods, like over a couple decades, him going from super hopeful to kind of anti-Semitic um, over that period because he got bitter. It seems like he got bitter at the fact that this group of people didn't want to hear what he had to say. Yeah, and so I think when I think about that, what comes to my mind is, you know, before Isaiah is sent to speak to the people, he's told they're not going to listen. They're not going to hear you. Yeah. You're going to speak it. You're going to teach it. They're not going to turn so that they could be healed. Mm -hmm. All of this. And so, yeah, like this goes to your point of like, we need to assume that what we say, it's almost safer to assume that what we say is going to fall on deaf ears yeah. to some extent, just because we're, we're dealing in. Because one, it keeps you from bitterness, but two, it keeps the desire to stay connected with God even more important, right? Because right. if you know what yeah. you're about to say is going to fall on deaf ears, you have to trust more and more that God's going to be the one to take care of it. Yeah, of you. and you believe that you were commissioned on God's authority to go and do this work. Yeah. So you're doing it because God said to do it. So like when people say, okay, so sometimes um, when there's discussions about the Great Commission, mm -hmm. it seems as if the motivation is, well, there's lots of lost people. We need to bring them to Christ. Like, right, right. But it seems to me like the, the fact is a motivation, but the deepest, most profound, most driving motivation should be, we do the Great Commission because God said to do the Great Commission. Yeah, we do the Great Commission because when we are obedient to God, we are, we know him better. Yeah. So you were, you had said a little bit about the foolishness, about Paul's discussion of foolishness over against worldly wisdom. And I want to hover over that for just a minute because I, I've always looked at this as the wisdom of man. Okay, so like worldly wisdom, like a, yeah. a worldview that is fully encapsulated by the temporal or by what's here in in yeah. our apprehension of is still mortal life. It doesn't even compute compared to the dumbest thing that God could do. Right. So yeah. so it becomes foolishness. And so right, right. that that uh, is kind of what he's saying. Yes, yes. And so like but I've I've had some people take this idea and they push towards sort of like a virtuous ignorance, like, oh, well, yeah. they, they take the... Or recklessness, back to that recklessness thing. Kind of, yeah. At the end of Ecclesiastes, the scriptures talk about how, uh, you know, the the endless studying of books and reading is a weary to the body. Yeah, yeah. First of all, everything you read in Ecclesiastes needs to be filtered through the fact that it's under the sun. That it's it's right. Solomon's observations of reality as such under the sun. Yes. And so, like, we have to be careful with that. Secondly, Proverbs, particularly in chapter eight, seems to suggest that we should be in pursuit of wisdom as if it's fine gold, as if yeah, it's worth yeah, yeah, more yeah. than fine gold or jewels. Yep. And 
So can you just articulate for the listeners the difference between this wisdom, which we are supposed to pursue over right. against the, what uh, maybe the world would call wisdom, which would be foolishness? And right. how, how does that work with what Paul's saying about how he doesn't speak elegantly to empty the yeah, power of the yeah, cross yeah, yeah. and how he's what he's saying is perceived as foolishness? Can you kind of lay that out for everyone? Right. So I think kind of what you articulated is... Um, Christianity has propped up simpleness, like a, a simple like a simpleton. We have said that is a good thing um, in some capacity because it's like um, the kind of the uh, the Bible says that I believe it. So there it is. Right. Kind of mentality. It's mm-hmm. like there's just there's a simpleness to that. Right. And that is appealing in a lot of ways. It's like I don't really have to think for myself or about anything. All I have to do is look at the Bible, do what it says. Um which isn't necessarily a bad thing, except for the fact that it is actually very hard to read the Bible, understand exactly what it means, and do it on your own accord. In fact, you shouldn't do it on your own accord. Um, you should read the Bible on your own, yes, but that should be always in conversation with people from your church community, um, people who have studied this for years and years and years, those who have gone before us, right? Like there's this great cloud of witnesses that tells us all of the things that we're supposed to be thinking about these things, right? So the the simpleton idea, I don't think quite fits the bill, so to speak. Mm-hmm. If God, in fact, gave us an intellect that is designed to unravel and understand things more and more, then it would make sense that one of our pursuits should be wisdom, right? Because here's, here's part of where I, I think the rubber meets the road. If it if something is wise, it finds its source in God. Yes. Right? But I don't think we think that all the times as Christians, which means I need to be in pursuit of things that are wise, even if they don't necessarily... And here's the other part of that. I think sometimes Christians believe that we have all wisdom on all things. And it's like, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Um, I can't promise that because I haven't been everywhere in all places in all times to say Christians hold a monopoly on wisdom, right? I do know this. If it is wisdom, it is God's, and we should be in pursuit of that. And you know where you can find wisdom a lot of times? Books. Pod- I mean, these days, podcasts, all sorts of things, other people. You can find wisdom from people that fall outside of the bounds of Christianity because Maybe they perceive something about the world more correctly than even we do, mm-hmm. right? They obviously don't have the same lens, but maybe they understand the depths of human folly better than even we do, and then therefore can point us even further to grace without even realizing it, right? Um, in fact, God, throughout the Bible, uses people who aren't part of like the greater family of Israel all the time to point out the folly of Israel, Right? He is pulling wisdom. He is using wisdom outside of the traditional bounds of, you know, what we would consider orthodoxy to then point out the ways in which you are flawed and whatnot, right? Which is why I don't think Paul ever goes around lambasting people, right? Like, I think he is particularly aware, despite the fact that he himself is a very—Paul had to have been an incredibly smart and wise person, right? Like, he, he lowers himself, mostly, I think, to make a point. 
But I think he realizes, like, God has given him an intellect. And in fact, it is because of this intellect and wisdom that God has given him that he is able to be so articulate in his writings. Yeah, it's part and parcel of his calling. Yeah, even. right. So we shouldn't just be tossing aside our wisdom and our intellect and and drive to pursue wisdom in order to just say, well, I just want to be a fool for God. Right. It's like yeah. because God might have given you that and it would be a waste of your talents to do otherwise, right? Yeah, and so maybe like a good illustration for when worldly wisdom becomes foolishness, you could think of it like, I'm gonna pick a particular ideology that won't stir up emotions in people who might be listening to this. So let's just say <laughs> flat earthers. Uh, well, I follow a couple flat earth pages, fun fact. So anyway, go ahead. Okay, so so if somebody is, uh, if someone's wisdom or their body of wisdom is infected by the ideology of the flat earth, Yes. Then they could know more about the flat earth than 10,000 other flat earthers. And so they would be considered among the flat earth group as exceptionally wise. Yeah. But when stacked up against truth, they they just look advanced in folly. Yeah. They're just they're just very far along You're in folly. They're really good at being stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that this is true of any ideology that disregards God right that it that disregards Christ that right so these things that sort of capture people mm -hmm. and they exist outside of the faith you can go really far down these rabbit holes yeah and you can perceive that you are wise because of it and other yeah. the people who are in the rabbit hole with you might hold you up as the wisest among them yeah but your wisdom is foolishness yeah and I mean Paul says I consider everything pointless except for Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? Like that is his message. And it's not because he thinks people are idiots or stupid or anything like that. He just thinks that anything that the world has to offer as its best, Jesus is still better so much so that it would be stupid to not pursue him, right? Like that's kind of the the logic yeah. between what Paul has what Paul is saying in those moments. It's like yeah, that doesn't mean that what the world doesn't have to offer isn't isn't is bad in any capacity or not good. It just doesn't even compute compared to Jesus, right? So the world can offer potentially a good thing. It just is considered rubbish, garbage, and like a pig's pen compared to the pearl that is Jesus Christ and him crucified, mm -hmm. right? So should you pursue Jesus Christ and him crucified first and above all else? Yes. To be able to understand that best to be able to communicate that to others well it would behoove you to be a student of what is going around you on around you so that you can be best equipped and able to present the gospel in a powerful and effective yeah. way someone said and this is why i think this is true uh, what you said is why i think this is true someone said that um the bible is not only a set of truth claims. It's not only a set of of uh, yeah truth claims, but it is also the pre. It's the necessary precondition through which you're able to recognize truth at all. Yeah. And I think that that's right. I think what it yeah. does, if you read the scriptures and they're resident in you, mm -hmm. you are given a apparatus of perception that allows you to see what's true. Yes. And without that. You can't get there. Yeah. And, and that's Which where the means blindness you can also. From. So a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, for example, can look at another religion where previously they saw the religion as whole as bad. Right. 
and I can, so for example, um, I was a religion major in college. I really liked studying Islam in particular. I have a friend who is a missionary to Muslims, um, and he has his master's in Islamic studies as well. I can look at Islam as someone filled with the Holy Spirit and say, there are so many truths in there. They're, they're missing the mark on some very important things, but that doesn't mean that it is completely devoid of truth. The Holy Spirit allows us to take something other than Christianity, take the meat from it, and leave the bones. Yeah. Right? And unfortunately, we are so—I think we're timid a lot of times to mm -hmm. be in the business of taking meat and leaving bones. But that's exactly what I think the Holy Spirit equips us to do. Yeah, right? and, and, and that is, to take this all the way back to the initial uh, part of the conversation, that is the process that guards against demonization because right. what it does is it allows you to see the good and the true in people, even if the... And leave the bad there. Right. Yeah, and that's it, it's an honest look at another person, I think. Yes, and you can't get there unless you have... The, the equipment necessary to get there. Right. Like you and just that can't is do it. the Holy Spirit. Right. And so that's, man, that's good stuff. I think that we can probably wrap it up there. Uh, we'll talk more, I think, in the next episode about the power of words, just because that's a, that's another really deep and profound yeah. uh, topic. Man, and we are so flippant with our words. And oh, I think yeah. most of the problems that we face in our culture is because people have been flippant with their words. Yeah. Me, myself included. Yeah. So like the, the impact of words. Yeah. We're going to start there next week. Yes. <laughs> or it, two weeks. It, it, Who knows? Right. Like it's, words are so easy to use that their ease of use doesn't accurately describe the impact that they actually yeah. have. Yeah. And so, yeah, right. For good and bad. So that'll be good. Uh, and you'll get to hear it if you come back for the next episode of the Uloft podcast. It's been great to have you with us and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. Also, come out and join us for a Unite every Tuesday at 7.27 p.m. This is a time of music, friends, and important teaching. You don't want to miss it. You can learn more about Unites, as well as everything else we do, by visiting unitediup.com. Thank you all for hanging out with us, and we will see you in the next episode.